on. I'm on three seats. Look, there goes the game. Tonight on Ithaca Now, we'll hear about what you need to know about holiday travel in the upcoming weeks. During this phase, there is expected to be consistent changes in traffic flow. So the airport is encouraging people to arrive at least an hour and a half prior to their scheduled departure time. We'll learn about fake news and the distrust of the media. I think there's a tremendous amount of distrust toward journalists uh, in general. And we'll sit down with New York Times columnist David Brooks. Um, and it's, it's hard to do a story about a town because the towns are complicated and people want to pick out the one thing that seems most strange. Um, but trying to get to the complexity of the place is, of course, harder. All that and more tonight on Ithaca Now. You're listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news podcast focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Michael Memis, and thanks for joining us. On tonight's episode, we'll hear about the impacts the holiday season will have on your travel routines. We'll also hear a piece from our collaborative series with media and the law students. And we'll hear an interview with David Brooks, a columnist at the New York Times. But first, here's Nigel Young and Hamadri Saif with this week's Community Beat. This year's Robotics Day competition in Cornell saw more than 100 engineering students participate enthusiastically. They built robot warriors pitted in a battle against each other, a unique battle that tested their speed and efficiency over their destruction capabilities. With the season of giving quickly approaching, the ELFS program, an organization helping children in need throughout Tompkins County, is still welcoming donations. Founded in 1989 by the Alberta family, the ELFS program provides clothes, school supplies, and toys to local elementary schoolers. Local school nurses and social workers act as ELF leaders in their districts to help the organization identify children with the most need and reach out to local families to see if they would be interested in sponsoring a child. With the holiday season approaching, Ithaca is looking at a few transportation changes. The City of Ithaca's Common Council voted for moving our bus's stop to East Seneca Street. The location of the new bus stop will be at the Starbucks next to Hilton Garden Inn. Ithaca College theater arts students posted the offensive words of their professors throughout the halls of the Dillingham Center earlier this week. This was done in retaliation to Dillingham faculty members' insensitivity during conversations about race and sexual assault in their classrooms. Having seen the students' demonstration, Lejeune Cornish, provost and senior vice president for academic affairs, addressed the issue in a campus-wide email and stated courses of action for the betterment of the campus climate, including policy review and revisions and diversity training for new and returning faculty members. The Burns sisters will be performing at the Kitchen Theater in Ithaca next Friday and Saturday in celebration of and for the Ithaca community. The powerful sibling duo, who have been singing together their whole lives, will perform with a band including Dave Borisov, London McDaniel, Doug Robinson, and Tony Markellis, along with a few surprise guests. The Ithaca Commons welcomes patrons to the Winter Light Festival this weekend. 
Friday featured the Lightsaber Invitational, which offered LED lightsaber combat training to all interested from 5 to 9 p.m. Saturday's Let's Glow Ithaca event, also from 5 to 9, welcomed people to party in their brightest and most colorful attire during a light parade led by Sparky the Unicorn. The Prismatica light prisms will be on display through Sunday evening. For Himadri Seth and WICB News, I'm Nigel Young. Getting ready for the holiday season, WICB News Director Bridget Bright checked up on local transportation organizations to see how they are altering services for the holiday seasons. We are right in the middle of the holiday season, and there is so much to appreciate this time of year. Like snow flurries, the smell of cinnamon, hot chocolate, gingerbread cookies, Christmas trees, gathering with friends and family, and traveling. Okay, maybe that one doesn't bring much joy, but it's still a big part of the holiday season. Whether you are just taking the teacat to the mall or driving across state lines to visit loved ones, transportation has to come before celebration. If you are traveling locally, you should be aware of the adjustments TCAT has made to its schedule. The main consideration you should be aware of is that TCAT will not be operating on Christmas or New Year's Day. For Monday, December 23rd and Tuesday, December 24th, routes 11 North, 83, 83 West, 90, 92, and 93 will not operate. And for Thursday, December 26th, Friday, December 27th, and Monday, December 30th, routes 10, 11 North, 81, 83, 83 West, 90, 92, and 93 will not operate. To see TCAT's other scheduling changes, check out the TCAT webpage. Additional service modifications will be announced there for January 2nd through January 18th when the winter-spring schedule will go into effect. For those of you traveling a bit farther, Note that the Ithaca Tompkins Regional Airport is still under construction. They are warning passengers that during this phase, there is expected to be consistent changes in traffic flow, so the airport is encouraging people to arrive at least an hour and a half prior to their scheduled departure time. For WICB News, I'm Bridget Bright. The public distrusts the media. Why? Ithaca College students Paritha Desai, Sam Hott, and Austin Walcott take a look at a phenomenon that's been growing immensely since the start of Donald Trump's presidency, the public's distrust of the media. This piece was produced this spring as part of the Media and the Law series, a collaborative project between WICB and Ithaca College. The relationship between the police and the press has always been a complex one, and in recent years, the relationship between the people and the press has also become strained with accusations of fake news and a growing distrust of the media. These two trends combined have made for a tricky situation for journalists. 
with the president calling the legitimacy of the press into question, members of the public have become more wary of the media. In a 2018 poll by Axios, 92% of Republicans say traditional news outlets knowingly report false or misleading stories. 53% of Democrats also held this idea. Russell Rickford is a professor of history at Cornell University. He thinks President Trump demonizing the press is a tactic to gain political support. I think there's a tremendous amount of distrust toward journalists uh, in general. I mean, obviously, we have a, a deeply conservative president who revels in uh, the sort of vilification of the press and of the media for his own sort of political ends. The sort of corporate media is already unpopular with large segments of the population. And then so it's easy to demonize them and it wins. It's easy for Trump to score political points. Ashley Edland is a reporter for WROC Channel 8 News in Rochester, New York. She says that in this environment, it's harder for reporters to connect with their audience. I mean, there's times when people are afraid to talk to us or hesitant to talk to us because they think that, you know, what they say to us could compromise an investigation or could paint them in a bad light. In the past couple of years, there have been a number of incidents involving police officers and FBI agents posing as journalists. The most common defense for this has been the need to collect evidence or information. You may have heard of the 2014 standoff between the federal government and a heavily armed militia in Oregon. The Bundy family made national news after the government tried to take back federally owned lands. A part of the story that got less attention involved FBI agents posing as documentary filmmakers. The undercover agent spent nearly eight months with the Bundy family, collecting information through more than 100 hours of video and audio recordings. This evidence was later used by the FBI in court, where the Bundy family was charged with conspiracy, assault, and weapons offenses. Edelin says cases like this make it hard for real journalists to gain access to vital sources. I definitely have been in that situation before, where you're trying to gain someone's trust so you can tell their story and they're very hesitant and if they had thought that I was anything but a reporter and they didn't believe me, I think we would have had a tough situation to deal with. The FBI has impersonated members of the press multiple times in the past few decades, but a 2007 incident in Seattle, Washington was especially controversial. Agents created a fake news article attributed to the Associated Press on a fake Seattle Times website. The website was used to plant software in the computer of a suspect involved in a series of bomb threats. Then FBI Director James Comey defended the FBI's actions, saying it was, quote, proper and appropriate. It's already a tough climate to be in for reporters, and I just kind of worry that if there are if there's little trust already between the media and the public, that something like this, if it ever became public knowledge, would just make it even harder for us to do our jobs. Because then you're going to have people thinking, you know, is this person who says she's a reporter, me, for instance, actually telling the truth? I feel like in the media we have enough trouble getting people to trust us. I feel like that would make it a lot harder. Rickford says this practice brings up a bigger issue. These are really pressing questions that, that we all need to address. And again, quite often these tactics are justified using the specter of terrorism. So whether it's domestic terrorism or, or sort of international terrorism, 
And I and I wonder if there's a robust enough conversation about the full implications of the kind of surveillance, the kind of monitoring that um, that is going on. For the Media and the Law series, I'm Paritha Desai, produced by Sam Hout and Austin Wolcott. David Brooks is a conservative opinion writer on politics, currently working for the New York Times. In the past, he's written for NPR, The Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and The Atlantic. WICB correspondent Paritha Desai and former executive director Hannah Bracinger talked to him about his work and the political state of the U.S. as of last year. My name is David Brooks. I'm a columnist of the New York Times. All right. Did you want to start with your questions? Yeah, sure. So I've been reading some of your columns for a while now, but especially this morning, <laughs> trying to prepare for the interview. And you have a more conservative bent, it seems, but the readership of the New York Times tends to lean more left. So how do you go about trying to persuade your audience or trying to see an issue from maybe a different point of view? First, show respect. Um, don't start calling you liberals, you're all idiots, like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then second, I'm sort of a moderate conservative. So um, as when I was hired, my boss told me I'm as conservative as our readers can stand. <laughs> so hopefully I'm within the realm of, of, um, of what people find reasonable. And I find, you know, I, I rely on the fact that people have some interest in having a different point of view. Uh, and I don't even, I used to think, oh, I'm conservative, I should write conservative stuff. Now I don't even think that way. I just think, what do I think here? Uh, and I just try to write it in a way that's respectful to people who I, I disagree with. Um, and you get, well, I'm struck by the power of that label, conservative. People hear that word and they think, oh, he must be like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the label is just a very powerful thing. But I have, hopefully, I have my own brand of, thinking, which happens to draw from some conservative writers from the 18th century, but it doesn't have much to do with what the Republican Party is now. So who, who would you draw as your main inspiration? Who do you, what, like, who do you read? Yeah. Well, my two, the, the people who are really the guideposts of my political philosophy are two. There's Edmund Burke, who is an 18th century Irish philosopher, and his key concept is epistemological modesty. Basically, the idea is the world is really complicated, more complicated than we can know. So we should do change constantly, but it should always be gradual and incremental. Just because if you try to do big revolutionary change all at once, you're liable to make everything worse. And so that's been vindicated, I think, by my political reporting career. Just when people try to really do a revolution, they set off all sorts of chains of reaction they didn't anticipate. And then the second is Alexander Hamilton. And he really stood for the idea that government shouldn't really interfere in capitalism, but it should actively help people become capitalists. So get active involved in giving them the skills and the talents they need to rise and succeed. And he was a poor boy who came from the islands and immigrated and then rose and succeeded. And he really thought that's what America was about. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think that. So those are my two heroes. So you mentioned briefly in my first question, the sort of the way the Republican Party has swung, um, and that's sort of a trend that's happening around the world. Why do you think that's happening? Why are people sort of swaying to that very far right wing populism? Yeah. Well, populism and, and nationalism are, are rising all around the world, at least in the Western world. And I'd say first, um, we've had a lot of, of culture of 40 or 50 years of individualism. People feel isolated and they cut off, and they just want a sense of community. And unfortunately, if you leave people alone, tribalism is a very easy way to form community. I mean, it's not a very good way because it's based on mutual hatreds, not mutual affection. 
so that's one reason. The second is the economy has generally stopped working for a lot of people. Uh, and so they, they feel upset and they want to they change things. Uh, and then finally, the diversification of Western societies is a big change. Um, we were, we're going to a country that's majority minority. Uh, refugees are flowing through Europe. People see the culture changing around them. Uh, and I support all these changes, but I admit it's a, it's a big experiment. And so some people don't like it. Uh, and I think they're going to be proven wrong, but who knows? And so I think it's a, a reaction to just the growing diversity and cosmopolitanism of all our societies. So how do you think the media has played a role in this sort of swing towards the right? Or do you think they've played a role in it? Yeah, not a good way. I think, um, you know, most of the media, like my newspaper, you can always tell the newspaper by the first words of this title, not the last. So the first words in our title are New York, New York Times. And so we reflect New York. The Washington Post reflects Washington. And that's cultural home. Uh, and as a result, we tend to be less familiar with rural America. And as a result, sometimes we look down in rural America, sometimes we condescend to it. Uh, and so a lot of people feel that they look at our paper, which sometimes reflects like the hip wazee, the hip neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and they think, who are those people? Uh, and so they, they just feel completely alienated from us. And we've often not done a good job of connecting, hire we never hire from those places. Um, you know, we've got a, a lot of kids who went to school on the East Coast and the West Coast and the newsroom. And so um, there's a cultural gap has opened up in a way that's, to me, unfortunate. Mm -hmm. You might not know, not know the answer to this, but, you know, a lot of the other staff members there, do you know if a lot of them come from rural backgrounds or is it typically reporters who are from big cities? Yeah, it's typically reporters from big cities. Um, the number of times, and this is not just special to New York Times, but it's other places I work, NBC. Mm -hmm. Um, the number of times I'll hear somebody say, oh yeah, we were on the Crimson together, which means they went to Harvard together. Yeah. And so there's a disproportionate share of those people, that I would say, at all newsrooms of the elite. Yeah. So, um, talking to sort of the next generation of journalists, how do we make sure that we don't alienate um, a certain part of the population or maybe frame our stories in a way that um, makes people feel like they're not um, represented in the media? Yeah. Well, I mean, my colleague Tom Friedman has a phrase, if you don't go, you don't know. Uh, and so, like now, I'm I, after I, I never thought Trump would get the Republican nomination. And after he did, I spent two years on the road. And I'm spending another year on the road right now. And so I spent a lot of time in, last week I was in um, rural southeastern Ohio, Appalachia. I was in Wilkesboro, North Carolina before that. I was in Youngstown, Ohio, going to Nebraska next week. Um, and you go to these places and you talk to people, and you learn a lot. Uh, and uh, it's fun. Like I, I'm, I grew up in New York City, and I grew up in Lower Manhattan, but going out to a rural place, I didn't see a cab until I was 16. Uh, but to go to a rural place, you're, you see a new culture, you see new things. Um, I was in the hill country in West Texas the other day, the cowboys I went to this place with uh, they make the most awesome beef jerky I've ever had in my life <laughs> and so it's like one of the reasons you go into journalism is to learn mm -hmm, and like you're here like you probably don't have to drive too far to find a very different culture than Ithaca mm -hmm. and so that's the fun part of the job it's just seeing different sorts of people who you know who hunt and fish which was very different than the way I grew up I was with a guy who grew up in a farm in, in West Tennessee a town of about 80 people 
and he talked about his childhood, and I realized it's 100% different than my childhood. And so it's just fun to meet people like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think being out there on the road in more rural areas, do you think that's changed the way you report and the way you write in any way? I think so. I, well, at first, you just gives you some granular reality of what people are thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say just in general, um, you know, for example, there, I often hear my friends and colleagues say the people who voted for Trump did it just because they're racists. But when you meet somebody who had their best job at 35 and they're now 70 and every job has been worse, he said, listen, I, you know, I know the guy's a jerk, but he's my shot at change, so I'll take my shot. Mm -hmm. So you get a sense of the people who voted for Trump, which I don't agree with, but they sort of are, so, are very aware of his weaknesses. But they're saying, I'm going to take my shot at change, which I need. Um, and so there's a, a nuance and subtlety that you just pick up on. And then the other thing, frankly, is you, you get to see how little a role politics plays in most lives. So in, in D.C., you can totally miss this. But I happen to be on the road pretty much straight through the Kavanaugh hearings. I was in Minnesota and Ohio and Texas. And people were like, yeah, that's all craziness. And so they weren't super engaged. They like just had written it off. And so, and they were busy with other things. And the other thing you realize, for most people, their primary loyalty is not to the country, it's just their town. Uh, I was out in, near, when I was in Texas, I was sort of near San Antonio. And people just, their town. And what's happening in Washington is like the weather patterns in Mongolia, like some far away. Definitely, yeah. Um, so one of the critiques I've been reading a lot lately about um, election coverage, especially post-2016 election coverage, is this practice of what people call parachute journalism. Mm -hmm. It's like um, a journalist from Washington going to middle America and then coming back to write about mm -hmm. sort of like a, looking at people like how we look at a safari almost. Correct. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, of course I do it, <laughs> but I, I hope I do a lot of it. <laughs> and so if I just visited Youngstown for two days and then went back, um, that would be one thing. But I will say like probably in the last um, three months, probably been in 40 states. Um, and so each state is different and you, you see complete differences from one state to the next or from one community to the next. You hear a lot of similarities. And it's like anything, if you do it, uh, I'm, and it's true I'm not staying in one place long enough. I, you know, so Wilkes-Barre, North Carolina is a little town uh, where Lowe's Furniture was founded. Um, and so I don't really know it, but I know a lot about rural America from visiting like 15 rural towns in the last several months. And so you just, if you do it in depth and you really listen carefully, then I think it's okay. If you came in once, Frankly, somebody from my paper did visit this town in Wilkesburg, North Carolina, and they treated it as this hellhole where everybody's on opioids. And it was not an, it was a, it represented a truth about Wilkesboro. It didn't represent a complete truth. And I would say that was an example of, of parachute journalism. Um, and it's, it's hard to do a story about a town because the towns are complicated and people want to pick out the one thing that seems most strange. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to get the complexity of the place is, of course, harder in a short news story. Yeah. Um, so you are a political columnist, so I have some political questions for okay. you. So what are your, do you think that in 2020 will President Trump be beatable, in your opinion? Yeah, I try not to get too complicated about it. I mean, of course, we've all learned, uh, we, nobody knows anything. But the surest predictor of whether a president's going to re get reelected is his approval rating. And Trump is at 43, and if you're under 50, the general rule is that's bad. 
Um, and so just from that simple number, you think, well, he's really very, very vulnerable. Um, on the other hand, I thought two weeks ago, the Democrats were gonna have a gigantic wave in these midterm elections, and that may still happen, but they've done their best in the last week to sabotage their own chances. Um, and so the, the polls have shifted very sharply in the last week in a pro-Republican direction because of all this Kavanaugh stuff. And interesting. Um, basically, it's not because people's minds are changed, but Republicans were disengaged. Democrats were highly engaged. Mm -hmm. Republicans were disengaged. Now suddenly Republicans are as engaged as Democrats. That's basically what's happened. Um, and um, so I always say you never know how the Democrats are going to find a way to screw this up, but don't matter. Um, so what do you think about the Democratic field for 2020? Of course, there are 3,700 members in it. Um, my instinct, I could be wrong about this, there are like maybe eight to 10 senators running. I just think it's a bad year to be from Washington. And so, you know, you'd have to say Elizabeth Warren is the favorite right now. I don't think Bernie Sanders will be the favorite. I think it's very hard to capture the magic twice. Like he had a run and people were really drawn to him. It's less, I've never seen it happen twice. <laughs> um, so, but Elizabeth Warren will be very strong. I just think when you ask a mayor or a governor what you do, they can list all these things. I did this, I built that, I did that. When you ask a senator, it's like, oh, I gave a speech. And I just think the hostility to Washington is still so strong that even the Democratic Party, it'll be a huge advantage to be from outside. I frankly think the strongest candidate the Democrats have is a man who's not running, which is Mitch Landrieu, who was mayor of New Orleans. He's got a very common man feel. He's just like a regular guy, can relate to a lot of different kinds of people. Very strong record on civil rights sort of moderate progressive, uh, but he's apparently not running. But somebody of that sort, I think, would scoop up all the people who are disaffected by Trump who are in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to sort of, uh, to to go on that a little bit more, you know, this wave of sort of progressivism in the Democratic Party, do you see something like that continuing in the future? Yeah, I think that's an open question. You know, that we had all these primaries, um, and in some cases, super very progressive candidates won. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, they didn't. This was not a year where Democrats were really very upset with their own candidates. So when they had a Democratic incumbent to vote for, they tended to vote for that person. It's not like they all swung. Like when the Tea Party was rising, the Republican Party really did swing over to the right and a lot of incumbents lost. Like, didn't it happen a little for the Democrats? It didn't happen massively. Mm -hmm. So to me, whether the Democrats become are the same sort of Barack Obama party we're used to, or whether they swing over in a more Bernie direction, that to me is still a very open question. But I would say the evidence so far is still sort of a Barack Obama party. Yeah. So you mentioned you, you were traveling around during the entire Kavanaugh hearing. Mm -hmm. Do you see sort of, um, I mean, you were, you were probably... Or you were around during the Anita Hill hearing. Um, we were, it was before we were born. But um, do you see people speak of a cultural shift in between the way that was sort of that that hearing happened and this one happened? Do you see that? Or yeah, not? for sure. And how uh, the senators in the Anita Hill hearing had no idea how to handle the situation. And they were pretty brutal toward her, very insensitive to her. It was like they were, were confronting a, somebody from Mars. They just didn't know how to handle this stuff. Uh, and um, people are much more sensitive to the situation. They're much more sensitive to the trauma that follows from it. 
And I think both Republicans and Democrats have been educated, not necessarily by Anita Hill, but by Me Too, by the whole sweep of history. And we're also much more psychologically sensitive uh, than we used to be because we're surrounded by so much trauma and depression and other issues. And so that that part, and, and the fact that there, I don't know how many female senators there were um, at Anita Hill dates, but they're for a chunk now. And so just by being around people, you, you just learn. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think on this front, um, it's a story of progress. I the, I sort of hesitate to make these two episodes the moments of Me Too or whatever you want to call it, because they're both about partisan attempts at uh, just brawling. And I one of the things that saddens me about the last couple of weeks is the Me Too movement was very non-political. You could be rural, you could be urban, you could be red, you could be blue, and you could be sort of cheering it on. Now I, I hate to think that it'll just become a blue thing and reds will be against it. And so the politicization of it is something that I think is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And do you think that'll harm the movement or maybe stop it from yeah. maybe changing things in the way that it could? It could very well. Like global warming uh, until about 2004 was not a red blue thing. Like there was many Republicans with global warming um, plans and proposals that there were Democrats. It was just a thing. And then suddenly, over at some point, it became politicized, maybe because Al Gore made a movie about it. And suddenly it became a political issue. And suddenly all the Republicans decided, oh, I don't believe in that. And it was just because, well, if Democrats are going to believe in it, we're going to not believe in it. Just the way politics works. And so that, that can definitely happen. Um, so we, I mean, I just got like a news alert that there's maybe two or three more senators that are sort of still unsure about confirming mm-hmm. Kavanaugh. What are your opinions? Do you think he'll be confirmed? Uh, this, this show will have uh, will come out after, so yeah. I better be right. Um, <laughs> I mean, the conventional wisdom we're speaking on uh, Thursday afternoon and um, is that it seems likely that he, he will be, just because some senators have seemed to be leaning that direction. And basically, you look at the polling, um, that it, people said if there's no confirming evidence, 60% will be confirmed. So you'd have to think that. But by the time people hear this, there will be nine more scandals. <laughs> I don't know what will have happened. You forget like 30 days. It's like 30 days ago, um, some anonymous White House staffer wrote an anonymous editorial in my newspaper about what it was like to work in the Trump White House. To me, that was only 30 days ago, but it seems like it was in the fourth century. Like, so much happens. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> These past couple of years. Yeah. Uh, those are all the questions I have. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to comment on that we didn't get to? Um, not really, no. That's okay. That's you can feel free to say Well, thank you so much for talking to us. That's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. Tune into our podcast next week at 7 p.m. to hear our Best of Ithaca Now episode of the fall 2019 semester. You can find all of our content on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past broadcasts, find our podcast for free on SoundCloud.com slash WICB. For more updates throughout the week, follow us on social media. Search for WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And before we go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard. WICB station manager Peter Champelli, and our new staff, executive director Bridget Bright, managing director Jacqueline Agahigian, and production director Jay Bradley. All of the music from our show comes from Dr. Dundiff, who hails from Louisville, Kentucky.
Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful rest of your week. I'm Michael Memis, and this has been Ithaca Now on 92 WICB.